For the last month, we have been chatting about YA and middle grade titles published over the course of the last year. But December is here and New Year's November is so over. We are back to literary throwback discussions here on SSR. And I am thrilled to be getting back into the swing of things with a conversation about Lewis Sacker's 1988 novel, There's a Boy in the Girl's Bathroom. The main character of this book is Bradley Chalkers, a seemingly underachieving fifth grader who feels constantly misunderstood by his classmates, teachers, and family members. To combat his isolation, he turns to his only friends, a set of toy animals who he seems to use to roleplay the heartbreaking social situations that he so often finds himself in at school. Things begin to change, however, when, at the demand of his teacher, Bradley meets with Carla, the new school counselor. While he's reluctant to spend time with Carla at first, their relationship evolves meaningfully over the course of the book. Right off the bat, I've got to tell you that I think this is an important peek for kids into what therapy or counseling can really look like. There's a Boy in the Girl's Bathroom opens up opportunity for conversations about plenty of other things, too. On this episode, my guests and I talk about depictions of masculinity, mental health and the stigmas around it now and in decades past, and the ways in which a kid's life at home might affect their performance at school and among their peers. We also swap notes on our complicated feelings about the book's title and on bathroom protocol among elementary schoolers. It's a little bit of everything on today's show. Today's guest is Lisa Schwartz, and I am so excited to have had the chance to welcome her to SSR. Lisa is an actress, writer, and producer born in Los Angeles and raised on Seinfeld. She is best known for her YouTube channel, Leasebug, which features original comedic and musical content. To date, Lisa has garnered more than 2.2 million unique YouTube subscribers. Her most popular video, a parody of Taylor Swift's Shake It Off, generated 20 million views and received coverage in several outlets, including the Huffington Post. Lisa also co-created and starred in Party Girl, an original scripted series for Freeform, as well as This Isn't Working for ABC Digital. She has hosted various digital segments for ABC's The Bachelor, Seventeen, and Yahoo. She can be heard as the voice of Talking Angela in the Talking Tom and Friends show on Netflix and Rube in the animated feature film The Ladybug. Lisa's first book, 30 Life Crisis, is on sale now. And with all of that going on, Lisa still somehow found the time to read There's a Boy in the Girl's Bathroom and talk about it with me on the pod. Can you even handle how awesome that is? Show her some love by following her over at Leasebug, that's L-I-S-B-U-G on YouTube, and at Lisa Schwartz on Instagram. As always, you can show SSR some love by following at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter and by searching the SSR podcast on Facebook. Five-star ratings and reviews on iTunes are also a quick way to my heart. I know you probably hear this from all of your favorite podcast hosts, but those ratings and reviews are no joke. It only takes a few minutes, even seconds, to leave one, and the more a show has, the easier it is for potential new listeners to find it and lift its position in the rankings. You can also support SSR by shopping for our bookmarks, totes, and t-shirts at www.ssrpodcast.com shop or by coming on board as a Patreon supporter. Patrons contribute a few dollars each month to the production of the podcast in return for a handful of exclusive rewards, including newsletters, bonus episodes, input on book selection, free shipping on merch, book club chats, and more. You can join the Patreon family for as little as $1 per month. During this season of giving, it would mean oh so much to me if you would show your support. Get all the details at www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or by visiting www.ssrpodcast.com and clicking support at the top of the page. If you're already a Patreon patron, please know how much I appreciate all that you do for SSR. Have you tried Libro.fm yet? If you haven't, I'm not quite sure what you're waiting for especially since I have a discount code for you. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Choose from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. 
You know who I'm talking about. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports the community. SSR listeners can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter code SSRPOD when prompted. Treat yourself this holiday season with a new audiobook, or two. You totally deserve it. And the indie bookselling community deserves our support too. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to SSR. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Guys, we're in the presence of like a YouTube celebrity and a debut author, and I'm kind of feeling a little shy and nervous right now. Uh, no, come on. That's so embarrassing. I hate the whole YouTube like celebrity thing. It makes me kind of want to die. All right. Well, forget that I even said it. We're just going to start over and say, hi, Lisa. Welcome to SSR. Oh, hi. Thanks for having me. So nice <laughs> to have you. We're talking about there's a boy in the girl's bathroom today. And for the life of me, I can never figure out how to pronounce this author's name. So we're just going to say Louis Sacker. I've heard people say Sakar, but Louis Sacker sounds a little bit more natural to me. Um, and this was a book yeah. written in 1987. And it was your pick. Yeah, it was. Well, I was so excited because you asked me if I wanted to do something uh, like present day or from the 80s. And I was born in the 80s. And there was nothing more exciting than reading something from my childhood. But I did not read this growing up. So this is brand new to me. You didn't read it as a kid. I didn't read it as a kid. I couldn't remember because I read like a lot when I was growing up and sometimes things fall through the cracks of my memory. And this was like a pretty popular book. So when you chose it, I was like, maybe reading it now will sort of jog my memory as to whether or not I read it when I was little. I'm like 99% sure after rereading it for the show that I did not read it. And to be honest with you, like I was really excited to have somebody pick this book because the title made me feel like a little unsure about what we were going to be getting into and I was kind of nervous I had no clue I don't think I even like had a sense of what the book was about and so of course like my hypercritical mind is thinking there's going to be issues there's going to be gender problems in this book like can't wait to get into it and listeners I'll let you know ahead of time that there wasn't that much of that I was a little disappointed on that that was exactly my same thought I was like oh this is going to be bad but like so good bad like I can't wait to talk about it and when you first when they first reveal the boy in the girl's bathroom it's like oh, okay, it's not what we thought it was going to be. Yeah, I thought we were really going to be able to like go in on this book, but not so much. I'm actually going to say up front that like I kind of really liked it. I did too, and I'm serious. Like days after I finished reading it, I was like still thinking about the book. I don't know why. It was like this was a journey. I felt like I went on a journey, and I had so many emotions about this, the main character, and at first I like really didn't like him, and like yeah, I'm still kind of processing it. I think this is a big book for a child. It was a ride. There were highs, there were lows. I felt like we were right there with Bradley Chalkers, our main character. So interestingly, when I was, you know, looking at the old Wikipedia for this book before you and I started talking, the description of the book refers to the main character, Bradley Chalkers, as a bully. And 
I didn't, like, love Bradley when we first met him. I mean, we're not really supposed to love Bradley when we first meet him. But my first impression was not necessarily of him as, like, a bully. What did you think? Yeah, I agree. Like, and it gets weird towards the end when he, like, has never been to a birthday party before. Yeah. And it's it's almost like he's an alien in a way. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, he's that weird kid that sits in the back of the classroom, but I wouldn't categorize him as a bully either. He was actually being bullied the whole time. That's what I thought. And so when I saw that, like, not only on Wikipedia, but in a few other articles and some reviews that came out when the book was published in the 80s, I was a little confused. So here's sort of, like, Bradley's situation, listeners, for those who haven't read the book in a while. He's the oldest kid in the fifth grade, and that's because he had to do fourth grade twice. And so, you know, this is, like, a trope that we see in books and movies and TV shows like you know the like sort of oversized kid in the back row of a classroom who has been ostracized by his classmates because he's like too old to be hanging out with them but like not quote-unquote smart enough to be like moved ahead with the kids that are actually his age Um, and so it's like very easy to get that mental picture in your head and I pulled out one quote from the book that I think pretty well describes like how we're supposed to be thinking about Bradley. The quote goes like this, there are some kids, you can tell just by looking at them, who are good spitters. That is probably the best way to describe Bradley Chalkers. He looked like a good spitter. He was the oldest and the toughest looking kid in Mrs. Ebel's class. He was a year older than the other kids. That was because he had taken the fourth grade twice and now he was in the fifth grade for the first, but probably not the last time. So like that idea of a kid that just looks like a good spitter, like I remember the kids in my elementary school and middle school classes that looked like that. Yeah, and also, like, he probably had cooties also. Yeah. For sure. He was the kid with cooties. Although, I don't, I remember that quote, but they called him tough. And for some reason, he didn't seem very tough. He wasn't very tough, bless he? He wasn't. It was confusing because, like, you do have this image of him as this, like, big dude who, like, has moments where he kind of wants to beat people up. The one moment where he was definitely a bully was, like, about girls. He really doesn't like girls. And I would say, like, even more intensely than your standard, like, boy versus girl elementary school drama, like, he wants to beat girls up and he talks about that a lot so he kind of like bullies his female classmates but inside I actually think he's like not as tough as he maybe wants people to believe that he is um another quote that I pulled out was he understood it when the other kids were mean to him it didn't bother him he simply hated them as long as he hated them it didn't matter what they thought of him and I know this is like bachelor speak but like I feel like he has his walls up and he is just like kind of afraid to let people in yeah they never really dove into like why right oh oh his father his father got shot he was a policeman? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Like, his father's this, like, big police officer who was shot, and the guy who shot him was never caught and never put in jail. And we talk a lot about, like, depictions of masculinity on the show, and I do think that, Mm. like, even though the author wasn't particularly explicit about this, like, my sense just from the few scenes that we got with the father is that he's, like, this tough guy, and maybe Bradley is feeling like maybe that's what's expected of him, but he just, like, isn't actually built that way. Right, and they don't talk about this. Things. Never. So he never really, he did. He was asking all these questions about what had happened to his father. And obviously, like, they didn't get answers, but it seems like he also didn't get answers from his father. Yeah. So that's interesting. The dynamics at the house are kind of weird. Like, I was having trouble getting a handle on his parents at first because Louis Sacker is, like, kind of well-known for these, like, zany characters and sometimes, like, zany family constructions. We read Holes for the podcast at the beginning of the year, and I would say that that book is, like, maybe a little bit wackier than this book and the characters are a little bit more off the wall and whimsical and that sort of thing and so I couldn't quite figure
figure out for the first few chapters of this book if I was supposed to be looking for that kind of whimsy or if it was just like normal characters. And when he walks into his house and there's this whole like paragraph about how it smells like fish and his mom's holding fish. Like I was like, are they fishermen? Do they own a fish market? Like I just couldn't quite figure out what we were supposed to think about his parents. And they sort of like seem to become more like quote unquote average parents as the book goes on. But I just like couldn't quite figure out what their deal was. Yeah. And and it never, you see their relationship grow a little bit towards the end as Bradley becomes more comfortable in himself and kind to her. But it doesn't really seem like the parents did a lot to sort of aid him with this. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think that they're kind of going through the motions. Bradley's the second child, and he has an older sister named Claudia who, like, isn't that nice. Like, she has moments where I'd say she's fine, but he's bullied at home. Like, his dad kind of makes him feel like shit about himself, even though I don't think he means to. His mom just seems to be, like, trying her best but not doing all that well as a parent. And his sister just kind of makes fun of him all the time. And so once we got more of that information as the book went on, it didn't necessarily surprise me as much that he was having such a hard time at school. Yeah, totally, because his home life wasn't great. But it wasn't terrible either. Yeah, So it was kind of like they didn't push one way or the other. It kind of just sat in the middle. Honestly, the thing that I couldn't wrap my head around is like all this kind of made sense in the grand scheme of like child development. But when we got to the birthday party, and am I jumping too far ahead? No, we jump all around. We jump all around. So they go to this birth. He he goes to his birthday party at the end, and he like had only been to one other birthday party before in his life, and something had gone wrong at that party, and so he didn't know how to act at a birthday party, and it just felt so out of the realm of possibility. It's like he all of a sudden like didn't know how to tie a shoe or breathe. You do know what I mean? Like, sure he hadn't experienced that, but it was like there was like no common sense. You felt like it was like maybe too much. Yeah, it was so extreme on this, like, has his parents never even taken him out of the house before? Like, yeah, I mean, he goes so he goes to school, like he interacts with kids. Right. And they're like treating him like a foreign student. Yeah, he he asks if he has to like bring his own chair. He's like, do I need to bring my own chair? And he like doesn't realize that he has to wrap the present. Like there are all these details. He's so nervous. Um, I actually like had some shades of mean girls a little bit like Katie Heron. Like he has no idea what he's supposed to do with kids his own age or even like I was thinking about the character of Janice Ian and how like her whole thing is that like she used to have friends and now she doesn't get invited to do anything. And I sort of picture Bradley Chalkers that way. Like maybe when he was in kindergarten or first grade, he was like kind of popular or at least was comfortable with a couple of friends. And now he's like an outcast and like doesn't even remember what it was like to move in sort of like normalized social circles. But yeah, I I got this sense throughout the book and I really noticed it with the party that Bradley has maybe some like undiagnosed or untreated generalized anxiety kind of stuff, right? Absolutely. And a learning disability. I mean, there was there was a lot of mental stuff going on that they either just chose not to speak about or it was so ahead of its time that those kind of things weren't talked about as much. But yeah, yeah there was definitely a lot of things going on. So much social just- so much social anxiety going to the party and then like there's a scene sort of halfway through the book when he like finally decides he's going to do his homework and it's like this big deal because he's never done homework before. And once he finishes the homework, I'm sure you remember the scene because it's like so specific. There's essentially like a full page of italicized text that's just like all of these like weird 
specific questions about homework. Like, how does one turn in homework? Like, do I have to go hand it to the teacher? Like, he gets so paralyzed by not knowing how you're supposed to actually, like, submit your homework that he actually kind of chickens out and doesn't even want to turn it in. But that's bonkers to me. Yeah. I mean, maybe maybe that is a social anxiety or an OCD of some sort um, where he wants to do it perfect, which is why he never did it in the first place. And I think the counselor speaks about that to him. Like, I think you're just afraid of doing it wrong or afraid of not being perfect. So you decide not to do it at all, which is a very common thing for kids and people to do. It's like, we don't, we're not going to try because we're afraid of failing, but like, yeah, he like couldn't even figure out how to, yeah, I guess they push. It's a little extreme to me in some, some of these places where the scenarios, they push his character like so far to the edge. Yeah, I think up until the point where he was like, do you have to hand in your homework? Like, I think I was buying it because I get really anxious about stuff. And sometimes I like think through the ins and outs of like every possible situation. I mean, so many of us do. And then I I agree that like once he starts like sitting in class and he's like, so do I actually have to give it to someone now? Like, yeah, dude, like that's how homework works. You don't just look at it. And maybe, yeah, I can see how maybe that's like a step too far. But I do wonder like to what extent Lewis Sacker was trying to like subtly hint at anxiety disorder or like you said learning disabilities I mean I felt pretty early on that maybe he has attention deficit disorder because he like can't sit still in class he's constantly doodling or like ripping up his papers into a million pieces and I do think that in 1987 when this book was written there was so much more of a stigma about that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and kids weren't necessarily like being encouraged to get help um he also like has a lot of trouble with numbers and I, I don't know what it's called offhand but I do think that there's some sort of like number equivalent to dyslexia where you just have trouble like actually deciphering numbers on a page so again I felt like there were all these little hints toward things like that and I'm not sure yeah. how much the author was trying to point at that or if maybe he just wanted to show that this kid was like generally dealing with a lot of messed up stuff yeah that's an interesting I would love to know if there was more behind the reasoning. But, uh, you know, you mentioned that back in the day, it wasn't, like, discussed as much. And you see that here with the parents that were all upset about the counselor. I found that kind of interesting that, like, they had to get... They had to get a parent's approval. They had to sign off a waiver saying it was okay for my child to go to counseling. And at some point, all the parents rallied together and they're so upset that there's a counselor there and why is the school wasting money on a counselor? And it's like so opposite of what we're seeing now. Like the the change of um, how parents are just how every like human now is looking at mental health is so different. But it's kind of fascinating that even not that long ago, um, they're portraying parents as like so afraid or so defiant against getting their children counseling. School counselors actually even came up in the Democratic presidential debate last week. Not We don't even have to get political about it, but it is worth noting that that actually came up, sort of like the lack of school counselors in so many school districts around the country. And I was thinking about that I was reading as I was reading this book. And I I actually thought it was really interesting the way that we see that whole meeting play out. As Lisa was saying, there's this meeting that we get a peek into toward the end of the book um, when the parents are like all fired up about the fact that there's this new-ish counselor who's now in the building. Her name is Carla. We call her by her first name. And I thought it was kind of unique and notable that in this book that's written for like 8 to 12 year olds, really, we get a few scenes in the book, including that one, where we're like kind of in the mind of adults. Like there's no kids in Mm. that scene. So we saw it in that scene and then I think earlier in the book, maybe when Bradley's mom goes to meet the teacher, I thought it 
it was like different than a lot of the other books that I've read where it's not like, um, you know, Bradley tags along to the meetings. It's not like his mom comes home and gives him a recap. Like there are no kids in those situations at all. And I thought that for a kid, it probably like must have seemed really cool to be a fly on the wall in a meeting like that. That's so interesting. Obviously, you're reading more of these than I have. I haven't picked up a book like this since I was a child. (laughs) So it's interesting to hear that. Yeah, we're not seeing it through their eyes. We're just seeing it as is, um, as adults. So yeah, that's curious why they made that decision. I just generally loved the focus on counseling in this book. And I can't really say enough about it because 1987 listeners, like this was a long time ago. And the book really is like entirely about the power and the value of counseling and about taking care of your mental health. And while I didn't read this book when I was a kid, I actually had a school counselor that I had a relationship with. And to make the long version of the story a little bit shorter, I moved to this new school when I was starting first grade. I actually was meant to be starting kindergarten, but I had already been in school and preschool for a long time. And so I knew how to read. And they put me right into first grade when I was five. And everybody was like freaked out about that. Like it was a whole thing. And so I think between that and the fact that I was a new student and my parents had been divorced like relatively recently and my parents had just gotten remarried, like there was a lot going on. I'm not sure to what extent like meeting with the school counselor was a standard part of being a new student or if it was something that like maybe my mom had wanted me to check in with them. I don't know. But his name was Mr. Sears and he would have me like come into his office and have lunch like every couple of months just to check in and see how things were going throughout first grade. And I remember at the end of first grade, like being really sad that I wasn't going to get to like check in with Mr. Sears anymore. And then periodically throughout my elementary school career, I would sometimes like come up with bullshit drama to like go talk to him about. So I would just sometimes like, you know, be like, oh, my friends are being mean to me at lunch. Like this is a huge problem. And I would go and like ask if he could talk to me or like have lunch with me and in hindsight like what that's me I don't know if it's embarrassing I don't know if I just like need a little bit of extra attention but I really valued having somebody like him available in my school and I just like as an adult it reminds me like sometimes you just got to check in on your mental health and I guess that's how I felt as a kid like I'm not sure what I'm upset about I'm not sure if my friends are being mean to me but like clearly I just need to go talk to my friend Mr. Sears. I think that's awesome. I don't think there's anything to be embarrassed about. I think the fact that you were able to like establish that relationship and have somewhere to go and someone to talk to is like that's really cool. A lot of people are so afraid to talk to an adult about their problems. So that's nice. Well shout out to school counselors everywhere and shout out to yeah. my parents. I guess, for like sort of giving me the tools to talk about my feelings at that age. I don't know. But let's talk more about Carla, about this counselor. As we mentioned early in the book, Bradley's mom goes to talk to the teacher. And one of the weirdest things about the class is that like not only do the students not like Bradley, but like the teacher openly hates him, which... Oh, such a problem. So disheartening. So disheartening. She's actually bullying him worse than most of the kids in the school. Yeah, she's kind of the ringleader, actually. Like, when the new kid, Jeff, comes and the only seats that are available for him to sit in are right next to Bradley, like, she's the one who's like, "Mm, I don't know, like, those are actually really bad seats. Sorry, like, you're going to have to sit next to Bradley. Like, she's the one setting the model for that with the other students. Yeah, it's so sad. But also, you know what, that's probably the reality of the situation in many different schools. It doesn't surprise me that the kids weren't responding well to Bradley because the teacher wasn't doing anything to show them that's what was expected of them. And the teacher like really wants to talk to Bradley's mom and Bradley's trying to kind of like throw his mom off the scent. Ultimately, she does go in and meet with the teacher and the 
teacher says that they have this new school counselor who she wants Bradley to meet with because, you know, she sort of seems to be like giving up. She's like, there's nothing else I can do for him. She's kind of like quit on him before he's quit on himself in some ways. But he starts going to see Carla and she's like this young, like kind of fresh faced counselor. I like to picture her as like right out of college. She has like all of this. Yeah, she's so enthusiastic. She reminds me of like, all my friends who were teachers and who like started on the first day and had all of these like big dreams and then were like, fuck, this is so hard. And at first Bradley is like nervous to talk to her, which I think is very true of like anybody's counseling experience, no matter how old they are. Yeah. And you feel like you've done something wrong and there's something bad or wrong with you, which is why you have to be there. Yeah. Especially as a kid. But one thing I want to go back about just what like you picture her as. Yeah. They do a great job of describing what she what she wears every day. Mm-hmm. That's what he notices because kids pick up on colors and patterns. But the best part about it is they're describing like these fantastic 80s prints. And I could see like my childhood flash before me. Like I could see those fashion trends from the 80s. She's wearing like a lot of black and white and geometric shapes and funky buttons. Like that is such a fashion throwback to the 80s. I just loved it. Yeah, she wears a lot of like big sweaters and like blouses is I think how they're described. And I think there's one shirt she wears that's like a black and white checkerboard and I think he asks her like, do you ever play checkers on your shirt? Which I thought was like a funny touch. He has these moments where he kind of like betrays how young he is, which I always love in a book because obviously the point of a book that's written for kids is to like make kids feel important and like old enough to merit a story written all about them. And so I think so often like kid characters come off older than they maybe would come off in real life at that age. And then every once in a while, like an author will like cleverly put in a little reminder that like, no, this is like a fourth or fifth grader and they're actually really young. Yeah, that's interesting. I liked when Carla is talking about, um, and this is again, jumping forward to like once they become friends because early on they're not friends and there's actually a lot of contention between the two of them, but they're actually, they're just having this sort of like casual conversation and Bradley's like, so what did you do this weekend? And she says that she bought a shower curtain and he just starts like asking her questions about the shower curtain. And that also made me laugh because like just picturing this adult woman and this fifth grader talking about like home decor and how dirty (laughs) the shower curtain was like that made me laugh a lot. Yeah. There's so many very specific and random like references that are put in here in in their conversation, particularly that's super charming. And now that like, now you've got my brain going on just how progressive all of this is, but the character of Carla more so is so progressive, even in the way that she's teaching. Like she's using tactics of child psychology that we see now, but I'm not sure if they were as relevant back in the eighties. Things like not arguing with the child, not telling him no. I don't know. I didn't know what psychologists like act like in the eighties, but it to me seems so relevant and um, progressive in the way that she was handling him, especially at the beginning when there was, you know, some issues between them progressive and also like if you look at it the other way almost like maybe her as this child of the 60s or 70s like a little flower childy like I think it's so interesting Uh, how things like come back around obviously because now I think we're having a lot of similar thoughts to people in the 60s and 70s it's always a cycle of course but 
I kind of was thinking too in the way she approaches them. She's like, oh, very open and like there are no rules here. You're here to figure things out for yourself. I'm not going to tell you what to do. But totally, like it also seemed like this school generally was a little bit more conservative. Like the parents seem pretty conservative. Obviously, Bradley's parents seem pretty straight-laced and conservative. So the fact that this teacher has found herself kind of like plopped into this place that has like a very different worldview than she does. I mean, she's kind of set up for failure from the beginning, but it was nice that they gave her a chance. I mean, this doesn't really seem to be like a pro-counseling environment. Yeah, it is interesting. But also the teachers were willing to, even the principal were like kind of backing her. So yeah, there is a little bit of like, it's a weird mix match that she's there. But in the end, and we're allowed to spoil things, right? Boil away. But like, she ends up getting fired, although they do place her in another classroom for, what is it, elementary school or preschool? Yeah, they have her teaching kindergarten, which I thought was interesting too. Oh, kindergarten. Why couldn't they have moved her to another school as a counselor? It's like they're taking away this power that she has to like effectively counsel students, which seems like she's actually really good at that. So why would you, why would you put her in a classroom with kindergartners? I thought that was, it was very specific that the author pointed out like, no, I'm going to go be a teacher. Like she can't even do the job that she was trained for anymore. I mean, this woman probably has a master's. Yeah, totally. It was, it was a weird shift. It's like they didn't want us to be fully disappointed that she gets fired like altogether and like, you know, it's like out of work. Yeah. So they move her over there. And I guess it also gives him a chance to go visit her or find her somehow. I don't know. Yeah. It was a weird choice. The other At least she has a job. Yeah. At least she has a job. I'm happy for her. It was just very clear that like she got demoted. Like they were not picking up what she was laying down and they didn't want other parents yeah. to get upset about it. Um, one of the other sort of like strategies or tactics of hers that I really liked was when she asks Bradley if he has something to teach her because he comes into counseling and like definitely has his backup about it and just is not interested really in talking about his feelings and he doesn't really seem to understand what's supposed to happen in her office because he's like oh well you're a teacher right like you're going to teach me something and as you said like she's like I don't I'm not here to teach you or show you anything we're kind of going to be friends and then she goes on to say but maybe you can teach me something and I have such distinct memories from growing up of like how gratifying it was when an adult suggested that maybe I could show them something something this is something that my dad did a lot like he would pretend that he I mean I assume he was pretending that he like didn't know how to do cursive and so when I was like learning cursive at school I'd go visit him on the weekends and he'd be like oh, oh you have to teach me cursive um and we would spend like hours practicing cursive and I see now that like a he was probably trying to like reinforce what I was learning at school but it was also building up my ego a little bit because I knew something that he didn't and so I really liked that Carla was inviting Bradley to do the same thing because this kid self-esteem is so clearly in the gutter. Yeah, and he feels powerless, right? He has no control over literally anything except at home in his bedroom with his toys. And so she was giving him the power. She was giving him the control. And especially for someone that struggles with anxiety, a lot of it, it has to do with lack of control. And so she was keen enough to know, like, let's give him a place to feel in control, in power, to help with all those, you know, with the anxiety specifically. And to that point of sort of him gaining control in the room with Carla, once he starts to get a little bit more comfortable and he starts to realize like, oh, we come in here and we just like talk about things, she suggests that he writes a list of all the things that he would like to talk about. I forget what exactly they were discussing, but he sort of has this light bulb moment where he was like, oh, we're just talking about something that I wanted to talk about 
about and it feels good. And he acknowledges that to her and she's like, great, make a list. It's this really long list. It's all very funny and there's some really silly things on there. But I did pull out a couple of the items that were on there that seemed a little bit more significant. He writes, he wants to talk about gold stars, which he says multiple times in the list. And gold stars are like a concept that I think many of us remember from our own school days where like there's a chart at the front of the classroom and when you do good things, you get gold stars. Um, And he sort of acts like he doesn't care about them in real time when he's in school, but clearly he does care about them because he's listed them, I think, five or six times on the list. He also writes why people laugh, military school, basketball, friends, enemies, what it's like to be in jail, good boys, bad boys, who shot my father, how he got away, black eyes, fighting, girls with big mouths, what it's like inside a girl's bathroom saying hello, hate, things you like about yourself, things you don't like about yourself, things nobody likes about yourself, things you don't like about anybody else, why people like some people and hate other people, breaking things, I wish I was invisible, and I would not make fun of me if I was someone else. And those are just some of like the heartbreaking heartbreaking. things. I know, it was a little bit easier to read when it was like sprinkled among more fun things. I'm sorry. (laughs) Way to bring this podcast down. (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I think it's like interesting, like the things that were kind of coming to the surface for him while he was figuring out what he wanted to talk about. Yeah. And it's like, um, is it called free association when you're supposed to sit down and like write and it's kind of like reflects what's in your head. It's like that unconscious thing. So it really like, it's a great device that, that they wrote in there to get real quick insight to what's in his brain, what's on the forefront and how he thinks. Um, and all that stuff with his dad just kept coming up too, which leads me to believe like all that, that secretive stuff or the unknown stuff. I think there's something, I'm sorry, I I'm so interested in mental health and I go back to the anxiety. I suffer from anxiety. And so I'm constantly picking it apart and trying to figure out like where it all comes from. But I think there's something about the unknown also fuels your anxiety because it's that lack of control again. So I think with him growing up with this big idea that his dad got shot, which is super heavy, by the way, like I was surprised to see that in this book. And you probably know more. Again, I haven't read a child's book in a long time, but I was like kind of taken aback that they like conquered someone being shot. Like that is so intense to me. But this idea that he never really understood why the dad was shot and who shot the dad. And again, it's this lack of control that then leads into his anxiety, but then comes up in his unconscious when he's quickly writing this list. So it's fascinating. Well, you're right. That is a big thing. It's not something that I read about in a ton of kids' books, especially not from the 80s. I think I actually, in the margin of that paragraph, wrote real shit. Because it is. It's like very real shit that's coming up. And the author kind of mentions it offhand. Like, I think it's discussed maybe in a few paragraphs when he like explains it to us as readers. And then it comes up like a few other times as you're saying like on the list and like a few other moments when it just seems like Bradley's sort of nervous about the world. And then we sort of realize like, oh, like maybe it's because they don't know about this. But that is a big thing to go through as a kid. And it's likely that the father also has maybe some like untreated mental health issues that he needs to work through from going through that. Um, and so this is like a house that maybe just needs to pay a little bit more attention to what's going on in their like feelings um something else that came up for me while I was looking at this particularly like morbid version of the list I just mentioned is this idea of like good versus bad and it comes up like here and there throughout the book and I know there's one scene later on where he's talking about like what good Bradley would do versus what bad Bradley would do and recognizing that he sees these like two versions of himself within the same body and 
I remember like growing up and I don't know if it was like a thing in the early 90s where adults were moving away from this concept of like saying you are good or you are bad. I remember like my parents going through a phase where they used the word naughty instead of bad because I guess that was a little bit less of like a moral (laughs) distinction in hindsight. Like I'm not sure how it's different. I wouldn't necessarily want to be like in the naughty chair any more than I'd want to be in like the bad kid chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do think that like to us now, like that's not necessarily a language that we like to use for kids. I mean, it's definitely not a progressive idea. I think most like more progressive educators and like progressive child development experts, not that I'm one, but I think like it's sort of out of vogue to be like, this is a good kid versus a bad kid. And that comes up a lot in this book. Yeah, it's pretty black and white in terms of the way the school handles it too. It's like, there's no in between. None of that is embraced. Yeah. And Carla speaks to it a little bit. She says, I think everyone has good inside him. Everyone can feel happiness and sadness and loneliness. But sometimes people think someone's a monster, but that's only because they can't see the good that's there inside him. And then a terrible thing happens. And then Bradley's like, what? They kill him? And she's like, no. Um, They call him a monster and other people start calling him a monster and everyone treats him like a monster. And then after a while, he starts believing it himself. He thinks he's a monster too. So he acts like one, but he still isn't a monster. He still has lots of good buried deep inside him. I guess like that's a good way to illustrate for a kid like what is actually at stake here. Like it's much more complicated than I think a lot of kids grow up being taught. And maybe this is the author's like pushback against language about kids being good versus kids being bad. And like maybe this is what a lot of kids get at home. And maybe that's why they struggle to like find their true balanced self at school. Yeah, the parents kind of give up, just like the teacher in the story also gives up. And it's like, oh, he's a bad kid. He's just a bad kid. We have accepted that he is a bad kid, and that's that. That monster uh, explanation is brilliant. It's it's so – it breaks it down to such, like, an easy, digestible uh, version of a big concept, like you were saying. Like, that's a great passage. Yeah, I love that. He does a drawing of a monster, and he gives it to Carla, and she wants to hang it. And you can tell that nobody has ever thanked him for – giving them something before you can tell that nobody's ever said like I want to hang this on my wall and again like we don't get a lot of details about what happens at home but moments like that sort of point to the fact that he's not getting a lot of extra attention at home I mean his parents are feeding him and giving him a place to sleep and protecting him and all of those things but like nobody's really taking a lot of time to get to know him until he starts to do a little bit better and I hadn't thought about this before but now that I'm actually thinking about it while we're talking like it's a little screwed up because it's like he starts putting in a little bit more effort at school he's doing his homework he finally has friends the quote-unquote cool guys invite him to play basketball and all of a sudden like his parents want to help him with his homework want to help him dribble the basketball and I guess we could look at it as like he's actually asking for their help and like engaging with them but there's a flip side where it's like they don't want to engage with him unless he's like performing well so I don't I don't know what I really have to say about that but I think it's potentially a little icky yeah I think you're right there I don't know if that was intended it is interesting to try to figure out what the author intended to have the family dynamic be like but I think you might be right there where the parents weren't interested until he was interested or until it was easier for them well it's not like he's in this high achieving family I mean you watch movies and you read books where kids are in these like really intense overachieving families and they're underachievers and so the parents like don't have a lot of interest in them but in this book like that's not really the dynamic like his parents are like they work they 
have a house. Like, it doesn't seem like they are, like, type A or, like, super, super, super successful. So it's kind of confusing to me that they had such high expectations of Bradley because, like, they're not really modeling that for him. But I could be reading into it. I don't know. This is always a challenge with these books. But I, I wasn't quite sure, like, why they were finally being nice to him. I think, you know, the thing with the dad that was clearly upsetting to me was he was only excited to hang out with Bradley when Bradley was interested in kind of, like, stereotypical boy stuff. Like Oh, that's so true, right? Yeah. Basketball. basketball. The boys at school finally invite him to play basketball. Bradley surprises himself and is actually, like, not bad at basketball. And his dad's, like, pumped. He wants to teach him to dribble. He wants to get, like, a special... He's going to put the hoop up. Yeah, it's, like, a whole thing. He's, like, finally stepping into, like, the fatherhood position. Yeah, and you're right. Like, going back to the pictures on the the wall in in Carla's office, clearly the parents haven't, like, put any report cards up or any pictures on the fridge. In fact, like, he's able to lie to them about homework and things. They're so hands-off. They're so uninvolved. Yeah, and I don't have kids, but I... My thought from where I sit childless currently is that, like, you you sort of, like, seed the right to put a lot of pressure on your kids if you're not actually, like, engaging with their life. Like, I don't know. I just, I think it's kind of silly, even in the context of this book, that, like, we're supposed to believe that his parents are going to be disappointed in him, that he's not a good student, when they just, like, don't seem to care about anything that happens to him at school. Yeah, I don't think they were disappointed. Even when she went in for that meeting, she wasn't, like, super surprised. Yeah. And she didn't seem like she wasn't super defensive or anything yeah that's true it's like they don't they don't dislike him but I don't think they really like him either no I think they've just brushed him they just ignore him that's so sad I know can I ask you the most random of questions because it keeps I keep popping in my head please so when he goes into lunch at Carla's and this is like early on he asks her what she's eating and she says, what was it, yogurt and cucumbers, something like random like that. And he's like, oh, that looks good. And so she trades lunches with him and she eats a pastrami sandwich or some gross meat sandwich that this kid brought in. And that was like the point where I was like, okay, this lady's either insane or fearless or like that's just too extreme. I would never eat a kid's sandwich. <laughs> like, so gross. Yeah, I would not <laughs> trade my lunch with like a fourth grader or a fifth grader or whatever. No. And they're, oh man, I was just like, man, what a brave lady. She really went for it. That's disgusting. Yeah, sometimes like she was a little much for me. I mean, for the most part, I think she was a great character. Like, loved her. Loved, loved her. her. She's great. You know, book lover that I am. I loved the detail that she like gave him this book that meant a lot to her and it kind of yes. became his like lucky charm. And, you know, I loved that she really like prioritized him and wanted to show him all of these other things about himself and about life. And I do think that like, She's a really great sort of like ambassador for kids that don't know much about counseling or therapy of what that experience can look like. So go Carla. But there were moments when I was like, this feels a little inappropriate. For instance, when she signs her goodbye letter to him, I love you, Carla. Okay. Yes. That. And she also gives him a kiss on the cheek at one point. Yeah. And it's, that's when you're like, oh, this is the eighties, dude. <laughs> like this yeah. is the eighties. Like, and I remember, uh, I used to be a camp counselor and they even taught us 
if a kid says, I love you, you're supposed to respond. It's so nice that we could be friends here at camp just to really like set that boundary. But she straight up says, I love you and gives a a kiss on the cheek. Like too far, Carla, too far. Too far. And you ate the sandwich and you ate the sandwich, Carla. Right. Like no wonder the kid comes home and is telling his sister that he thinks that they're dating. Like, of, of course, he's in fifth grade. That's what he thinks dating is. Yeah, and they kind of were, man. They were, like, sharing lunches together. They were spending a lot of time together. They were. They were. Yeah, uh, there was a few moments where it's it's clearly inappropriate. But maybe not at the time? Yeah, maybe not at the time. I always wonder that. There have been a few other instances like that in books that we've read where more so, like, in books from the 70s, I think, where, like, teachers would invite their students to, like, go on day trips with them unsupervised. And um, I, I do think it was probably more acceptable before. I mean, now, obviously, like, it's so dicey for good reason. And there's so many more, like, limits on what teachers can do. But the fact that she said, I love you, was... I, I, like, was stuck on it for a while. And then also the fact that she, like, wanted him to show up alone at school to help her move classrooms. And I know that it was, like, just to say goodbye, and she wanted to have more quality time with him. And I guess, like, we're meant to believe that they've spent all this other time alone in her office, and so why should this be any different? And I don't think she has, like, bad intentions. It's not meant to be insidious or anything like that. But to my 2019 brain, I'm like, Alert, alert, this is weird, this is weird. Yeah, 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 keep the door open, keep the door open. And even the sister points out, like, oh, if the parents caught wind of the fact that she gave you a kiss on the cheek, like, she would be fired in a second. So, like, there was a sense that, like, it was slightly inappropriate. Like, the sister caught on to that. Yeah, but I think Claudia is meant to just be, like, kind of uptight and so I think like I think if anything we're meant to be like oh like that just makes her even more uptight like she's so boring but like no Claudia I think you're right I think I think you actually (laughs) have your finger on the pulse of what's going on here and uh I'm sad that Carla lost her job obviously like I hate that parents were coming out against her especially for such stupid things but like she probably shouldn't have been telling students that she loved them. Yeah, and also, and I forgot the name of one of the girl characters who was supposed to have her parents sign the waiver, and the parents refused to sign the waiver, and she counseled her anyways. Do you remember that girl's name? Yeah, well, there were a few. The girls did sort of run together for me. The only one that I know Absolutely. for sure. I think maybe Colleen. Colleen was the one who had the birthday party, and Colleen hilariously was the one who actually reminded me a little bit of myself and my relationship with Mr. Sears because there's the whole scene where she like goes to Carla's office to ask for her advice on who she should invite to her birthday party, and Carla does counsel her. So I think that it maybe was Colleen. It might have been her. Yeah. So, yeah, Carla did step over the line a few too many times. So maybe she should have been fired. Maybe maybe they were right. It just seems so extreme. It also seemed like the principal was on her side during that meeting, and then she was gone. Yeah, it just seemed like the parents were overreacting about everything, like the whole thing about how they were accusing her of, like, trying to convert their kids to Buddhism because she made, like, a very quick mention of, like, Buddhist monks, Zen practice. Zen practice. Yeah. Um, again, like, these are things that you wouldn't see in 2019 in most school environments written about in a book, I don't think. I mean, obviously, like, there are conservative schools and conservative communities where that probably wouldn't fly, but I think, like, most fictional schools like that wouldn't necessarily come up but I did think something interesting about that like 
I think it was called the concerned parents meeting. It wasn't a school. It wasn't a school board meeting. It was like concerned parents. Um, they were kind of having like a lot of the same arguments that you hear about in schools today. Like they were like, "Well, we don't want to pay for a counselor. We want computers. Um, you know, we want That's to right. have like more math and science." And it's obviously like evolved. It's a different version of that conversation today because you know so many schools now are having to fight for the arts, um, having to fight for supportive resources like counseling in schools. But some things like haven't really changed. Those fights are still happening. Yeah, that's right. The shift of where where should the money go and we don't want to pay for other children's counseling. And yeah. Yeah, kind of interesting. We haven't talked at all about the bathroom stuff and we have to because it's in the title and I want to talk about the title and how we feel about the title and all of the instances where the bathroom comes up in the book. I I don't even really know how to talk about the title because I mean... There are a few moments in the book where there is a boy in the girl's bathroom, or I believe there are a few moments where there's a girl in the boy's bathroom, and it's mostly just, like, kind of symptomatic of confusion. So the first time it happens is because Jeff, the new kid at school who also happens to be Bradley's, like, first and only friend, he's trying to find his way to Carla's office, and he gets lost, and one of the teachers points him in the wrong direction, and he ends up in the girl's bathroom. He panics, and he, like, hides in a stall, He thinks the girls have left, but actually they've just, like, come out of the bathroom and there's a new girl coming in. And so they see him and they scream, there's a boy in the girl's bathroom. Ah! And it's a whole thing. Um, He panics and then it happens a few other times. And every time it happens, it's, like, the biggest deal. All the characters freak out. And I was trying to remember, I was trying to remember, like, how I would have felt about that as a Oh, you would have freaked out. I mean, I I didn't know you, but I remember... That being, I was yeah. like, oh, let me tell you how you would feel. But I remember like, the fascination, because that's the time in your life, too, where you're sort of poking around with this idea of, like, liking boys and or the opposite sex. Or, you know, even if it's same sex, you're really, like, starting to sort of sexualize whoever you're looking at. Um, and so I remember this idea of, like, I wonder what it looks like in the boys' bathroom. There, the, It was a sense of, like, we're not supposed to go in there, so I want to go in there. It's that defiant thing, too. And so I think there's a fascination on both sides of just, like... And they even describe what they think the girls' bathroom looks like as yes. this, like, luxurious, you know, Vegas hotel-looking bathroom. If um, only. I mean... I would love for that to be the truth. I actually, now that I think about it, I think we had maybe co-ed bathrooms at my elementary school. Whoa. Lisa Where'd you grow up? Pennsylvania. And it wasn't, I don't think it was like a progressive thing. I think it was just sort of like a circumstantial thing. I don't, I just, and the reason that I say this is it's like a gross memory, but I remember one time like being in a bathroom and thinking that a bad noise slash smell was coming from a stall and I thought that I could tell that it was like one like a specific boy classmate and it really freaked me out not because he wasn't supposed to be there but because it was a reminder of the fact that like sometimes there were boys in the bathroom I could be making this up but like I do have this very specific memory of like feeling like I'd encountered this boy in my class not unlike Bradley Chalker's actually maybe a little bit meaner um and like a little bit cooler but similarly like oafish and just being aware that he was in the bathroom and like not being thrilled about it yeah I know I don't think I would have made that up would that I don't know that feels like a real memory that sounds like a horrifying nightmare if it wasn't a real memory I don't know that's crazy but either way there's this idea of like being uncomfortable and or fascinated by the opposite sex in such an intimate setting and what's crazy is Bradley was, or Jeff was in there while the other girl was going to the bathroom, remember? And he's like, it was a familiar sound. Yes. 
uh, you know, it was kind of disturbing, quite honestly. Right, like the story that I just shared. Um, No, it is disturbing. Now that I think about it, I think that we had, like, in a lot of the classrooms at my elementary school, like, each class had a bathroom. And so there were only a few sort of, like, hallway bathrooms in the building. I've never talked more about bathrooms in my life than I am with you right now. And I think that the hallway bathrooms maybe were co-ed. But generally speaking, like, I don't feel like there was quite as much discomfort around bathrooms and maybe it was because we had these sort of like private-ish bathrooms for each class and so it wasn't like a big deal obviously in middle and high school it was different but I'm just trying to think being in like fourth or fifth grade I guess it would have been a huge deal because you're just like uncomfortable with boys there's the cooties thing I think like ultimately no matter who you end up being interested in sexually like there's a pressure or there was maybe when you and I were growing up to sort of be like a boys against girls kind of thing and to just like assume that any one of the opposite sex is icky and to be avoided. And so, I mean, even like recess encounters with boys were sort of like scary and weird. So yeah, I guess it would have been like super upsetting to see a boy in a bathroom. It's just so hard to put myself in that mindset. And I also wonder if kids in 2019 have a similar reaction because like I just think sort of like the politics about bathrooms are changing and I guess it depends where you grew up too but I just I think this part of it might not hold up for all kids in 2019. Yeah I agree and this part of the book obviously is so huge because it's the title. I think it was just a very specific situation that sort of gave us this idea of boys versus girls and this curiosity and then how that set off their anxiety. But it wasn't like there wasn't that much talk of the boy in the girl's bathroom, right? There I guess wasn't. it kind of it brought Jeff and Bradley together initially because Bradley thought it was cool. He was like, let's go. Yeah. Remember, he kept wanting Jeff to go with him in the girls' bathroom, and Jeff was like, no, no. He came up with, like, every excuse. So I guess it did sort of start the the spiral of friendship. And, but it's interesting that they chose this title to represent this whole book. I can see how in the 80s and 90s, before this conversation about bathrooms was more sensitive and more political that like an editor or a publisher would be like kids are gonna love that title like that's a perfect title and I do think it probably sold them a lot of books so that's great yeah you're right like there's not that much about that in the book I did like what you said about how this idea of bathrooms really triggered the anxiety though and I think that that's really true and I hadn't thought about it that way um and I'd say like to that extent I think it was a great title but in 2019 I just like I feel like I wish it had a different title because like I said like I had some preconceived notions about what we were going to be reading because of this and yes a lot of it is because of my politics and because of like the way I see the world in 2019 but um I just think that like at this point maybe the title doesn't do the book that much service yeah the title is definitely as a youtuber I would say clickbait title (laughs) it is a click I mean I think that might have been the first thing I grabbed at the reason I grabbed this book because I was like oh this title like we gotta know this will be shocking Yeah. (laughs) Let's talk briefly before we wrap up about the little creatures that are Bradley's only friends at first. Because they play this kind of like small but very significant role in the story. He has these like glass and brass mini animals. They're not stuffed animals. At first I thought they were, but they're actually like breakable china things. Um, He has one named Ronnie, who I believe is a rabbit. And then there's Bartholomew, who is a bear. And at the beginning, when Bradley is really struggling with school, like the only, I didn't want to say people because they're not people, but 
the only people that he confides in are these little dolls and these toys. And Ronnie kind of represents like the kind of friend that Bradley really wishes that he had. And Bartholomew kind of represents like the hero that he wishes he was. And at various points throughout the book, like when he's not feeling good about himself, he sort of like wreaks havoc on the animals like Ronnie drowns or like their relationship is divided. So like he kind of plays out what's happening in his life with what's going on with the animals in this parallel universe. Yeah, that drowning scene was really quite like dark and a little bit graphic. (laughs) So kind of set back, but it is such a great tool. It's like, you know, in movies or TV using a voiceover to sort of move the story forward and, and get inside our hero's brain. And they use these little toys as that because he also like voices them. He gives them words and he gives them thoughts and you see that it's quoted out. And I think it's a great way to progress the story and also get even further into Bradley's head. I I liked that. I liked it too. We we all had dolls growing up or toys. They're like, I used to talk to mine and set them up in like a little classroom. And these kids still have a huge imagination. So it was a fun tool and reminder also that he is a child. Yeah. And I think it also speaks to the fact that like he's maybe smarter than we give him credit for, smarter than his teachers give him credit for, smarter than he knows. Like he's more in touch with what's going on than he realizes. And like he's sort of setting this all up in a smaller version. And um, no, I like that a lot too. And I'm surprised that this hasn't been made into a movie. And that sort of parallel story would make for an interesting like sort of interstitial thing where like you jump back and forth between what's happening at school and then what's happening with the animals. I was wondering the same. I meant to look it up to see if there had been a movie or a show based off of this because it really, it does still hold up. I was expecting to read this book and be like, well, this is so dated, like so completely dated. And it really, there's elements of it like we've been talking about, but it really, um, it really still holds up and it would be an interesting movie and a use of those little toys would be such a great storytelling element. Yeah, I'd be into it. I'd go see it. So normally, or, or often at the end of episodes, I will ask my guests if coming back to a book that they read when they were younger has made them love it all the more or has sort of like ruined it for them. Neither of us read the book when we were growing up. So I guess I'll just ask you, like, is this a book that you would recommend to kids in your life? What would you say to them? Would you hand it to them? Would you have any reservations or like sort of couch it with anything? What would you say to that? I would absolutely pass this along. Like we said, it really does give great insight to counseling and also just to any sort of mental, I hesitate to say illness, but you know, I think it really captures what a lot of kids are probably going through on some level. Um, And it does just such a beautiful job. And it also doesn't water it down. Like again, I'm new to reading these books as an adult, but it seems pretty mature to me and it doesn't treat kids like they're idiots. It really, I think, gives the reader a lot of credit um, to understanding emotionally what it's like to be a kid. So I think this is a, I honestly think it's a pretty brilliant book. And like I said, I was still thinking about it after I read it. I echo all of that. I actually feel kind of guilty for like having some judgment about the book before I started it. I would absolutely recommend it to kids in my life. um, And I think it's going to hold up for a while. Like I don't see a lot of reason that it will get stale 
even in the next decade. So um, that's awesome that it held up. So your book is now on sale, 30 Life Crisis, and you obviously just read There's a Boy in the Girl's Bathroom for SSR. Is there anything else that you've been reading that you would recommend to our listeners? Anything? It doesn't have to be a kid's book. It can be anything. Um, I just started Furiously Happy. Have you read this book? I haven't read Um, it, but I know the cover because it's, I love the cover so much. Oh, and once you read it and you discover why the cover is the cover, it's so fantastic. It's a bunch of short, quirky, crazy stories that really do talk about a lot of mental health issues, but it's examined at such a hilarious, raw, and unfiltered way. And I, I'm just... I am enjoying it so deeply. It's one of those books that I don't want to end, so I'm reading it very slowly. Oh, that's such a nice reading experience. I have to read it. I'm going to add it to my list. I'll include a link to that in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to There's a Boy in the Girl's Bathroom. And I'm going to say it again, 30 Life Crisis, the subtitle of your book, makes me laugh. Navigating my 30s, one drunk baby shower at a time. I am just now like transitioning out of the bridal shower phase into the baby shower phase. So do do those get drunk? Like, do I have that to look forward to? You better, you better ensure that if there's not a mimosa bar there that you bring your own because those become brutal after a while if there isn't any booze there. So prepare yourself. This is a cautionary tale. So that's going to be my contribution. Like as a bridesmaid, I have sort of like my designated things that I always show up with to showers and bachelorette parties. So maybe now as sort of like supportive friend of mothers to be, like my thing is going to be the mimosa bar for like the rest of us. You will be the hero amongst all your friends. Amazing. You're just giving me life advice. Love it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. It was so fun talking with you and I hope you have a really good rest of your day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks Lisa. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind-the-scenes inside scoop, and some good old-fashioned book talk. Find us at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.